If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Romans chapter 8. As our brother said, we're resuming our sermon series entitled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Now, when you hear that title, there can be many questions, one of which might be, is it true? Can the life of God occupy the soul of man? And a natural, logical follow-up conclusion, follow-up question rather, might be, is it true of me? Is the life of God in me? And I believe that God has a word for us from Romans chapter 8. So we're going to be reading in verse 9 and we're going to read through verse 17. So follow along, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if... By the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we do ask right now as our brother prayed a moment ago that You, You, You God would preach to us. We don't need to hear from man. We need to hear from You. So, it is our prayer that You would hide me behind Your Son and cause Christ to shine forth in all of His infinite worth and infinite glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have two main points for tonight's sermon, which I'm going to go ahead and supply. They are mortify and cry. Mortify and cry. So point one, mortify. Point two, cry. And in that, I want to focus on verse 16 as really the nexus of these two points. You see in verse 16 it says, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit Himself testifies. The Himself part is original to the language. It's meant to imply emphatically that the Spirit does it. He Himself does it. It's meant to be understood as a testimony involving the full Godhead. And we can conclude that because of what He is testifying to. Namely, 
our adoption. We are children of God. This is what you might call an immaterial truth. Immaterial because you can't touch it. But truth because of who it comes from. The God who cannot lie. Who has dwelled where no mortal man can go. Who can escape time and space and matter into infinitude. Who can ascend the mountain of God's hidden will. As it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What a word, you can't imagine this. What God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. So we cannot see our adoption. We cannot see that we are children of God. We cannot see justification. But the One who does proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son to bear witness to eternal truths which are bound up in a person. John 15.26 But when the Helper comes, whom I, Jesus speaking, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. The Spirit exists in accordance with the will of the Father to make much of the Son. And this is why we can say that the testimony in Romans 8 is Trinitarian. The fullness of God bears witness through the Spirit of God that we are children of God. And there's a most obvious and fundamental application of that point. God wants us to know. He's not hiding Himself from us. He wants us to know that we are children of God. We, like Adam and Eve, often hide from Him. Spurgeon said, the operations of the Spirit of God are easily obtained by the Lord's children. I fear that many of us will spend our days seeking assistance by the same means that grants it. Never aware of our nearness to God, oblivious to the deeper and more refined fellowship with our glorious God. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. For Christ's sake. Now do we doubt this by seeking assurance with the very means to prove it? When we hate sin, when we find ourselves weak and needy, unable to press on even for a minute, and when we in a moment, in that moment, will we question our Father's allegiance to His Son? Or do we plead His Son's merit? So here's my prayer for us all tonight. That God would give us an absolute sense of our adoption as sons in Christ forever. That we would be certain of our eternal position as children of God. That we would, in the Spirit, mortify forever the deed of doubt and spend the remainder of our numbered days sowing seeds of love for Christ. Now, if God would answer that prayer, if He would do that, here's what the answer will not do. It will not remove suffering. It will not remove hardship. It will not remove brokenness. It will not overcome our disposition. This is not an over-the-counter prescription for our flesh. We dwell inescapably in a fallen world. The longing for another world will continue. Hope will remain. Faith will be a necessity. But here's what an answer to that prayer will do. It will move us to kill sin. 
Christians kill sin in the midst of trial and tribulation, it will move you to cry with the cry only a Christian can conjure. It will move you into deeper fellowship with the triune God. As Ephesians 3 says, being rooted and grounded in love, being assured, you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So how is it that we can know assuredly that we are children of God? This brings us to our two points. We'll take the first. Mortify. Look with me at verses 12-14. through So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. John Owen in his famous treatise on Romans 8.13, perfectly titled Mortification of Sin, said this, and this is really his thesis statement, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. A mistake that many have made and continue to make is the failure to distinguish between justification, our legal standing before God, and sanctification, that ongoing process where we are made more like Christ. Paul here is not saying that our justification, life, is determined by our mortification, the putting to death the deeds of the body. Not only would that be contextually inconsistent, but it would be heresy of Paul's own doctrine. He writes in verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive. Or a, really a better translation, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We have the Spirit by whom we put to death the deeds of the body on account of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Additionally, Paul says in verse 12, Brethren. He's speaking to Christians. This is a duty assigned to Christians. He's speaking to those who are no longer under condemnation. We heard it from our brother four weeks ago. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now if you begin reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, you pick up on Paul's frequent use of the conjunction but. Verse 5, but those who live according to the Spirit. Verse 6, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 9, but in the Spirit. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you. So that as you arrive to verse 12, you're almost expecting another one. We read in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but, except it's not there. The NASB picks up on this, inserting a dash there. Paul interrupts himself. He feels a weight. He feels pressured to emphasize and urge mortification. The putting to death the deeds of the body. Verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That death is an eternal death. No Christian lives this way. We have a different identity While we obviously do retain a sin nature, hence Paul's urging of us to mortify sin, 
We are not living according to it. The Christian hates sin. That could be the title of our first point. Hatred of sin. We hate it. Romans 14.23 Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We hate everything that does not proceed from faith. That hatred leads to mortification. We want to be rid of it. And the exhortation here is to make war. The obvious question, how do we make war? Paul supplies the answer. Verse 13, by the Spirit. We read in verse 14 that we are led by the Spirit of God to do the work of mortification. Look look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. That for there connects verse 13 with verse 14. Christians are led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. This is the one way that we know we are sons of God. It's one way that the Spirit makes known to us our status before God. That's our first point. We are led to kill sin. Owen again writes, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is a call to action. Skugel in his letter, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, he writes that we are not to imitate the fool and the poet who stood the whole day at the riverside till all the, river, till all the water should run by. We must not indulge our inclinations as we do little children till they grow weary of the thing they are unwilling to let go. We must not continue in our sinful practices in hopes that the divine grace will one day overpower our spirits and make us to hate them for their own deformity. Paul is urging us to slaughter sin. To take up the fight against the deeds of the body by the Spirit. We've been given one One offensive weapon in the armory of Christ. Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. As with the lesser arts, we must learn from our Master how to wield this weapon. Skugel would also say, Oh, that the holy life of the blessed Jesus may always be in my thoughts and before my eyes till I receive a deep sense and impression of those excellent graces that shine so eminently in Him. So let's look at Him. Let's, let's, let's look to Him. Most obvious example, Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Note here that Jesus was led to be tempted, and in Romans 8, we're led to mortify sin. The point is, we're led by the Spirit. In the wilderness, a war was waged for His soul. His authority was tested. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. His identity was tested. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. His allegiance was tested. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship Me. Jesus, hungry, dejected, tired. How did He respond? Did He wallow in self-pity? Did he question his father? Did he doubt his purpose? Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, and while in the midst of heavy temptation, he wielded the very Spirit he was led by. 
his hand firmly gripping the hilt, his enemy in the crosshairs of the sharpened blade, he immediately, unreservedly, with full assurance and confidence, moved to make war. He struck swiftly and resolutely, dealing blow after blow. You can read it in the text. Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.16, Deuteronomy 6.13. Now if you've read the account, you know that the tempter also quoted Scripture. His first attack and his weakest dealt with the most obvious need. Jesus was hungry. He went after it. Jesus pierced him with his first text. The devil challenged immediately by Jesus bends a passage of Scripture. He's not wielding it. He's bending the Scripture in an effort to undermine the credibility of God. He quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Now if you've read Psalm 91, it becomes apparent that he was taunting Jesus. This is what verses 11 and 12 say. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard up all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now listen to verse 13, which Jesus certainly knew, and I'm certain the tempter knew that He knew it. Verse 13, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion, and the serpent you will trample underfoot. His identity was tested. The enemy reaches through Psalm 91, back to Genesis 3 to taunt our Lord. Are you really the Son of God? Are you really going to do that? Do it now. Remember, just before Jesus was led into the wilderness, He was clearly and manifestly identified as the beloved Son of God by His Father Himself. As children of God with Christ in us, the devil does the very same thing to us. Are you a son of God? He's a master of subterfuge. He's subtle and crafty. If he can keep us questioning our identity, am I a Christian? Do I belong to Christ? He can keep us from killing sin because only a Christian can kill sin. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Our sin is friends with Satan. As Skugel writes, every willful sin gives a mortal wound to the soul and puts it a great distance from God. Let us never look upon any sin as light and inconsiderable. We are at war with the cosmic powers over this present darkness. If we are caught sheathing our sword in the midst of battle in an effort to reckon with our identity as a soldier of Christ, we will die. Satan and sin will take us. So we fight back. We mortify. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Corinthians 1.8-9 1, God will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will do the work. Though we are faithless, He remains faithful. He will not deny Himself. So brandish the weapon and employ it. At this point, I want to say very plainly and clearly, if you don't hate your sin, you don't belong to Christ. Specifically, if you don't hate your sin for Christ's sake, you do not belong to Christ. We're not talking about moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
the hate certain bad things because it makes you feel good. That's self-imposed duplicity. That's deception. It's a suppression of the truth. And the law of God will condemn you. So to say it in the form of a simple question, do you hate sin because you love Christ? As children of God, Christians, that is, those who love Jesus, are led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. Scoogle again. Repentance itself is a delightful exercise when it floweth from the principle of love. This isn't an eyes-down self-effort. In love, we are led into further hatred of our own sin for Christ's sake. And in that, in that, we can know that we are indeed sons of God. That brings us to our second point. Cry. Look with me at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the second way the Spirit of God testifies to our spirit that we are sons of God. He gives us a cry. Like an infant to a parent, we cry. As our brother prayed earlier, we often don't know the words to speak. He causes us to see our neediness. The Christian life is a hard life. We live in an already not yet. We're, we're new creatures in old bodies. Like oil and water, we don't, they don't mix. We reckon daily with the onslaught of our own infirmities. Paul calls this an inward groan in verse 23. We long to be set free from these bodies of death. And we're promised just that. Verse 17, If indeed we suffer with Him, Now we will suffer. And in the midst of our sufferings, we cry, Abba, Father. Of that word, Martin Luther said this, this is but a little word. And yet notwithstanding, it comprehendeth all things. The mouth speaketh not, but the affection of the heart speaketh after this manner. Although I be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side, and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away, from thy presence. Yet I am thy child, and thou art my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved. Where this little word, Father, conceived effectually in the heart, passeth all the most eloquent rhetoricians that ever were in the world. Abba, Father. We read of Jesus crying out with these same words one time. It's cited in the New Testament in the Gospels. Mark chapter 14, verse 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, feeling the weight of what He's about to endure, is brought low. We read this account beginning in verse 34. And He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what You will. 
For because He Himself suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus in the garden is faced with inconceivable, unimaginable temptation to turn from God. He's brought to pray that the cup be removed from Him. He's distressed and troubled. His soul is suffering. He says, very sorrowful, even to death. Temptation is suffering. It's the most common form of it. We are all suffering, for we are all tempted. And Jesus has been tempted and thus has suffered in every respect as we are yet without sin. We suffer with Him. Douglas Moo, who wrote a great commentary on Romans, called these sufferings of verse 17 the daily anxieties, tensions, and persecutions that are the lot of those who follow the One who was reckoned with the transgressors. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. There's not one way we can suffer that Jesus has not already overcome. There is, however, one way that He has suffered that we'll never have to. Going back to Mark's Gospel, the next audible words that we read Jesus crying to His Father are these in 1534. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In 1436, we read the cry of the beloved son. In 1534, we read the cry of the damned. His sufferings didn't end in the garden so that ours doesn't have to go beyond. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death We're subject to lifelong slavery. We have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear. The Spirit of God is the antithesis of slavery and fear. And He indwells us. He's in us. As sons of God, we utter the very utterance of the only begotten Son, Abba, Father. In our deepest and most troublesome times, we've been given the privilege reserved only for a Son of God, the echo of the garden, a cry, Abba, Father. To conclude, Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts, our sins, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the essence of Romans 8. 9-17, through Abba, forgive us our sins. Father, deliver us from evil. Do you hate sin? Do you love God? If so, then you have your assurance. Now move to mortify and love to cry. We'll finish with this poem by William Williams. Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus. Oh, how passing sweet thy words. Breathing o'er my troubled spirit, peace which never earth affords. All the world's distracting voices, all the enticing tones of ill, all thine accents, mild, melodious, are subdued, and all is still. Tell me thou art mine, O Savior. Grant me an assurance clear. Banish all my dark misgivings, still my doubting, calm my fear. All my soul within me yearneth now to hear Thy voice divine. 
so shall grief be gone forever and despair be no more mine. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would, by the power of Your Spirit that indwells Your people, give us an assurance. Cause us to reckon once for all with the reality that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray for uh, the power by Your Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. We pray You would cause us to see our great neediness and cry to You, our Father. Pray that You would increase our love for Your Son, our great example, our Master, our Leader, our Savior, our Friend. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.